This message is a presentation of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information about the ministry of Vortex Church, please visit us online at vortexchurch.com. The world lay in waiting for a Redeemer. And on Thursday night, as Jesus sat with his friends and told him what we read earlier, that this body is going to be broken. This blood is going to be spilled out. I'm not sure they understood what the next few days would look like. The Passover supper that Jesus celebrated most likely ended sometime around 10.30 in the evening. After some time of visiting with his friends, at around 11.30 at night, Jesus takes a few of them and goes to a garden to pray. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. I've often made fun of the disciples for falling asleep. Because every time I've always pictured the garden, it happened at about 10 in the morning. There was no excuse to be asleep. But I don't know if you've ever had four glasses of wine and then tried to stay up past midnight. All right. It doesn't work real well. All right. And they had just had communion, which would have been four glasses of wine. And they just were leaving that party to go to the garden at around midnight, Jesus would find them asleep. It's in the garden that we see one of the most human expressions of Jesus ever. Where in his divinity he understands what is about to happen on the cross. But in his human body, he does not want to go through it. The anxiety that grips him sends him into a state where the Bible records that he sweated blood. We know now that that's a level of anxiety to the point where the capillaries in his pores exploded. And he says, not my will, but your will be done. At about one in the morning, Judas, who had dismissed himself earlier from the Passover meal, now returns with an armed guard as an eyewitness to arrest Jesus. To arrest him for blasphemy, for claiming that he is God. The disciples are now awake. And Peter, in all of his ambition, pulls out his sword and cuts off one of the guy's ears. He must have not been very good with the sword. That's all I'm saying, right? I guess he was going for a head, but he got an ear. And Jesus picks up the ear and puts it back on the guy's head. Now get this straight. They're there to arrest him because he claims that he's God. You just got your ear cut off and you put it back on. Now you're going to arrest him? 
because you don't think he's God? That's what they did. And at 1.30, Jesus is taken for his first trial of what was going to be a very long day. He appears before Annas, one of the former high priests who very promptly convicts him. And then Jesus is held and beaten. Very quickly, the high priest Caiaphas and the sitting board of the Sanhedrin appear at around 2.30 in the morning for the second trial that Jesus would be sitting under. And they find him again guilty. And he is put in a holding cell in the home of Caiaphas where soldiers beat him mock him, and ask him to prophesy to them. As the board has convened, and all the religious leaders who had made up their mind that this Jesus could not continue, this board makes the decision that we will ask the Roman governor, Pilate, to execute him at around 5 in the morning. Not too long after that, at what scholars estimate, at about 6 o'clock, the posse leaves the home of Caiaphas. Jesus in chains and goes to Pilate. Pilate very quickly questions him. And he asks him, There are these two moments where Jesus is asked, are these claims real? Or is what they're saying about you actually real? And two times, once before the Sanhedrin and once before Pilate, Jesus would say, what you said I am. You said, I'm the Son of God. What you said, I am. You see, Jesus confirms in these last hours his identity as God. Because he's only at this moment one of three things. He might be crazy, out of his mind. He might be the biggest sham artist in history. Or he is God. And as he stands before Pilate, Pilate says, is this true or what you said what they've said, I am. And he is 
hustled off because Pilate does not want this mess on his hands and sent to the Roman governor of the province, which would have been King Herod. Herod tries Jesus very quickly early in the morning at about 7 a.m. And as he asks him questions, Jesus does not answer or respond to Herod. So Herod washes his hands of him and sends him back to Pilate. Now by this time, the news of what is happening is spreading through Jerusalem. The crowds are beginning to follow. And now when they land back at Pilate's, it's not just Jesus and a few, it's Jesus and a lot. And Pilate knows at this moment that he has a mob situation on his hands. And he questions Jesus again and he reiterates, I'm finding nothing in this man. At 7.30 in the morning, Pilate orders Jesus to be scourged. Scourging is one of the most brutal forms of torture ever invented in all of humanity. We like to think of the whipping of Jesus looking a lot like a bull whip. But that's not what it was at all. You may have re- heard it referred to as the cat of nine tails because the whip that they used had multiple fingers that came out of it made of braided leather. And inside that Roman flange, there would be buried bone, rocks, and metal pieces tied together into those strands. And they would soak it in water. Because the purpose of this was not to whip. The purpose of a scourge was to remove flesh. And Jesus would be rendered over something that we would call like a wooden block or a rock so that his back was exposed. And across the left trapezius muscle, they would whip him. And as those pieces buried in the flesh, they would pull it out, exposing more flesh. Then they would move to the right trapezius muscle. The same thing. Then move down the center of the back. By the time this was over, typically... Muscles were exposed. The spine itself would typically be exposed after a scourging. It was extremely common for someone to die simply from 
a scourge. And Jesus, now wet with his own blood, is brought back before the mob. And Pilate presents them and says, well, there's the man, as if to say, if you thought he was a God, or if he thought he was a God, that's over now. The leaders continue to push for the execution of Jesus, and he knows Pilate knows that it is customary around the time of the Passover for there to be someone who has been tried, convicted, and in prison, for there to be a release of a prisoner. So Pilate plays a game with the mob. He brings out a guy named Barabbas. Thinking that if he brought out a murderer, and you stood a murderer next to Jesus, and the crowd could pick who they wanted, they would definitely want to pick Jesus and release him. But the crowd picked Barabbas. And then began to yell, crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate washes his hands and turns him over to the officials to be executed on a cross. Across town, Jesus would have to carry a cross that at that time is estimated to be well over 150 pounds after being scourged. We know that along the way, he is unable to continue to carry the cross. And there is someone plucked from the crowd and forced to carry the cross for him. And when they reached Golgotha at 9 o'clock in the morning, Jesus is crucified. There were two wrought iron Nails driven through his wrists below the hand. And the scripture records that the nail pierced the hand at that point in time. The term hand referenced everything from our fingertips to our elbows. Driving it through the wrist actually punctured and wounded the median nerve that runs all the way down the arm into the fingers. They would work very quickly to secure the arms and then raise him up and with the feet placed down, left behind the right, they would drive another nail into the feet. As Jesus hung on the cross, One physician described what would be happening immediately is that his arms would explode into pain. As the weight of his body pulled against the nail and rubbed that median nerve. And he would push from his 
feet to try to gain some leverage so that the ripping and tearing would stop. Gradually, his muscles would become so fatigued that they would cramp to the point that he had no control over them. He would go through periods of asphyxiation where he literally was unable due to the fatigue that was setting into the muscles that surrounded his lungs. He would no longer be able to breathe. And as the oxygen supply began to diminish, his blood would thicken. And around his heart would form a sack of fluid. Before too long, as the fluid built up and his heart was unable to pump, he would die by not being able to breathe at all. Around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, most historians believe Jesus died. When he died, the ground shook. A temple was near there, the temple of the Jews, and the veil in the temple was torn. One of the Roman centurions attending the execution would remark, this surely must be the Son of God. Around five in the afternoon, he was taken down. After his body was pierced, rendering that sack that had formed around his heart and blood and water flowing, demonstrating that he had completely died. His body, as the evening came along, was placed in a borrowed tomb. And Jesus was dead. Crucifixion is considered by most historians to be the most sinister, painful, and just downright evil forms of execution ever in the history of the world. It's where we have grafted our word ex or excruciating from. And think about this with me, that God in all of human history could have inserted himself at any moment to die for us. But he came when he would die on a Roman cross. There are three things that I see from the cross that I want to share with you as we read from Isaiah 53. Isaiah writing centuries before the death of Jesus, in a prophetic vision of what this was going to be, said this, beginning in verse 4 out of Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten 
by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought the peace that we needed, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The first thing that I want you to see today about the cross is that God has stopped at nothing to reach us. God has stopped at nothing. God has stopped at nothing to reach me. That he was willing to send his son in the height of Roman execution to experience the most painful death that history could ever leverage so that what? We could be reconciled to him. And I would tell you this, that in the cross we see something, that if God is willing to put his son through that much pain and discomfort so that we could be made right with him, perhaps God is willing to sacrifice our comfort for our good. And sometimes when we get into positions in life when it is uncomfortable, we like to think that God is absent. But let me tell you something. In the middle of the cross, God is very present and doing something that we desperately needed. The second thing that I see is that Jesus absorbed the judgment and punishment for all of our sins on the cross. Everything that we failed at, everything we've broken, everything we've messed up, was taken and put on Jesus on the cross. A man who was sinless, New sin because of us. Isaiah 53, 6, we just read this, says this. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He bore all of our sins. That means that we do not have to suffer the punishment and the judgment of our sins because Jesus has already absorbed that. He already took the blow. We don't have to. And the third thing that I see is that through all the beatings, the abandonment and his death, death, Jesus broke all the curses that sin had earned. Everything that sin earned in life, everything that we've done that we deserved, death itself, Jesus on the cross would defeat them all. Isaiah 53, 5 says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. He broke all of the curses on the cross. 
need that. So think about that with me. Sin earned us sickness. Sin earned us relational difficulties. Sin earned us death. But by his stripes, we are healed. He was wounded for our transgressions. See, we started a series a few weeks ago and we asked the question, if you had seven days left to live, seven days from that moment that Jesus rides in, received to Hosanna. If you had seven days left to live, what would you do? And you may answer that all kinds of different ways today. But let me tell you something that would happen if you had seven days left to live. The answer that none of us want to give, and that answer is that you would die. You would die. And in the world's perspective... As we enter Saturday, death looks like the ultimate defeat. Like, it's all over with. Since one, Jesus is dead. He's in, the, he's in the ground. He's in a tomb. But that's not at all how the story ends. Let's go to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, reading from verse 1 to 7. Now after the Sabbath, at the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake and an angel of the Lord came down from heaven. And going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. And his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. And he is not here. He is risen just as he said. So come and see the place where he lay. The resurrection of Jesus is certified proof that God can overcome whatever we face. It is a signature on a promise that whatever you are facing in your life, I don't care if it's relational problems. I don't care if it's death. God can overcome it. Because Jesus on Sunday morning was no longer dead. He was alive. Death and sin had been defeated. You see, it's easy as we think about it to think, well, is that real? 
Is that even real? I mean, could, could Jesus actually have been resurrected from the grave? Does that even make sense to anybody? But the acceptance of that story in the first century helps us to understand that that story was not a fake. The Gospel of Mark is written about 25 years after the death of Jesus. 25 years. Now, obviously, there's internal evidence in the book of Acts. Jesus is preached as being resurrected, and there are lots of people who respond to that. We definitely wouldn't see that unless there was an acceptance of that story. But think about this. 25 years seems like a long time. It's really not. What if I started making up stories about stuff that happened 25 years ago? I started claiming that something that was significant that happened in our town, let's just say something that happened in the world, didn't happen. And I wrote a book and told you why it didn't happen. If it's 25 years, there's enough people around that can be, look at this picture with me, right here. 25 years ago, Tiananmen Square. If you were alive around that time, you remember this picture. And I'm going to bet that it would be pretty hard to argue with you that that didn't happen. 25 years. Look at this picture. 25 years ago, the Berlin Wall fell. If you were alive, we watched it live on TV. 25 years. What if I came back and said, never happened. there's never a wall? Call me crazy. 25 years after the death of Jesus, in written form, the Gospel of Mark becomes the most prolifically distributed historical document maybe in history. It's the first gospel ever to record the life of Jesus. And as this gospel spreads, it is received. And I can tell you today that that reception adds validity, that that message is real. Not only that, but every disciple, every single disciple faced execution simply for proclaiming the message that Jesus had died for our sins and rose again. And every one of them was executed, except John. After two attempts, they quit trying to execute John and exiled him to an island off the coast. Those men who watched all of this unfold gave their lives to make sure that this story didn't end with them. Because... They weren't scared of death. They weren't worried about dying. The idea of their lives being taken from them wasn't something that fazed them. Because they knew that death was not the end of the story. They weren't scared of death because death was not the end of the story. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 
54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then this saying that has been written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives victory through our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, today, as we pause and look at the cross in all of its brutality, in the resurrection, in all of its beauty, God, let us find ourselves today in the middle of that message. For some of us in here today, we have never experienced a moment when our sins have been taken from us as we've been washed and been made clean by your blood. Some of us are in here and we've had that moment. We've come to you. We've asked you to save us and we've walked away from the reality that you invited us into. Some of us today are just simply questioning. We don't really know what to think today and some of us are just downright running. For all of us, God, for all of us, by your grace and mercy, come and capture our hearts for the good of Jesus.